Chapter Two of The Rise of Silas Lapham by William Dean Howells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After dropping Bartley Hubbard at the events building, Lapham drove on down Washington Street to Nankeen Square at the south end, where he had lived ever since the mistaken movement of society in that direction ceased. He had not built, but had bought very cheap of a terrified gentleman of good extraction who discovered too late that the south end was not the thing, and who in the eagerness of his flight to the back bay threw in his carpets and shades for almost nothing. Mrs. Lapham was even better satisfied with their bargain than the colonel himself, and they had lived in Nankeen Square for twelve years. They had seen the saplings planted in the pretty oval round which the houses were built flourish up into sturdy young trees, and their two little girls in the same period had grown into young ladies, the colonel's tough frame had expanded into their bulk, which Bartley's interview indicated, and Mrs. Lapham, while keeping a more youthful outline, showed the sharp print of the crow's foot at the corners of her motherly eyes, and certain slight creases in her wholesome cheeks. The fact that they lived in an unfashionable neighbourhood was something that they had never been made to feel to their personal disadvantage, and they had hardly known it till the summer before this story opens, when Mrs. Lapham and her daughter Irene had met some other Bostonians far from Boston, who made it memorable. They were people whom chance had brought for the time under a singular obligation to the Lapham ladies, and they were gratefully recognisant of it. They had ventured, a mother and two daughters, as far as a rather wild little Canadian watering-place on the St. Lawrence, below Quebec, and had arrived some days before their son and brother was expected to join them. Two of their trunks had gone astray, and on the night of their arrival the mother was taken violently ill. Mrs. Lapham came to their help, with her skill as a nurse, and with the abundance of her own and her daughter's wardrobe, and a profuse, single-hearted kindness. When a doctor could be got at, he said that but for Mrs. Lapham's timely care, the lady would hardly have lived. He was a very effusive little Frenchman, and fancied he was saying something very pleasant to everybody. A certain intimacy inevitably followed, and when the sun came he was ever more grateful than the others. Mrs. Lapham could not quite understand why he should be as attentive to her as to Irene, but she compared him with other young men about the place, and thought him nicer than any of them. She had not the means of a wider comparison, for in Boston, with all her husband's prosperity, they had not had a social life. Their first years there, were given to careful getting on Lapham's part, and careful saving on his wife's. Suddenly the money began to come so abundantly that she need not save, and then they did not know what to do with it. A certain amount could be spent on horses, and Lapham spent it, his wife spent on rich and rather ugly clothes and a luxury of household appointments. Lapham had not yet reached the picture-buying stage of the rich man's development, but they decorated their house with the costliest and most abominable frescoes. They went upon journeys, and lavished upon cars and hotels. They gave with both hands to their church, and to all the charities it brought them acquainted with, but they did not know how to spend on society. Up to a certain period, Mrs. Lapham had the ladies of her neighbourhood in to tea, as a mother had done in the country in her younger days. Lapham's idea of hospitality was still to bring a heavy-buying customer home to potluck. Neither of them imagined dinners. 
Their two girls had gone to the public schools, where they had not got on as fast as some of the other girls, so that they were a year behind in graduating from the grammar school, where Lapham thought that they had got education enough. His wife was of a different mind. She would have liked them to go to some private school for their finishing. But Irene did not care for study. She preferred housekeeping, and both the sisters were afraid of being snubbed by the other girls, who were of a different sort from the girls of the grammar school. These were mostly from the parks and squares like themselves. It ended in their going part of a year, but the elder had an odd taste of her own for reading, and she took some private lessons and read books out of the circulating library. The whole family were amazed at the number she read, and rather proud of it. They were not girls who embroidered or abandoned themselves to needlework. Irene spent her abundant leisure in shopping for herself and her mother, of whom both daughters made a kind of idol, buying her caps and laces out of their pin-money, and getting her dresses far beyond her capacity to wear. Irene dressed herself very stylishly, and spent hours on her toilet every day. Her sister had a simpler taste, and if she had done altogether as she liked, might have even slighted dress. They all three took long naps every day, and sat hours together minutely discussing what they saw out of the window. In her self-guided search for self-improvement, the elder sister went to many church lectures on a vast variety of secular subjects, and usually came home with a comic account of them, and that made more matter of talk for the whole family. She could make fun of nearly everything. Irene complained that she scared away the young men whom they got acquainted with at the dancing school sociables. They were, perhaps, not the wisest young men. The girls had learned to dance at Papanti's, but they had not belonged to the private classes. They did not even know of them, and a great gulf divided them from those who did. Their father did not like company, except such as came informally in their way, and their mother had remained too rustic to know how to attract it in the sophisticated city fashion. None of them had grasped the idea of European travel, but they had gone about to the mountain and seaside resorts, the mother and the two girls, where they witnessed the spectacle which such resorts present throughout New England, of multitudes of girls, lovely, accomplished, exquisitely dressed, humbly glad of the presence of any sort of young man but the Laphams had no skill or courage to make themselves noticed, far less courted by the solitary invalid or clergyman or artist. They lurked helplessly about in the hotel parlours, looking on and not knowing how to put themselves forward. Perhaps they did not care a great deal to do so. They had not a conceit of themselves, but a sort of content in their own ways that one may notice in certain families. The very strength of their mutual affection was a barrier to worldly knowledge. They dressed for one another, they equipped their house for their own satisfaction. They lived richly to themselves, not because they were selfish, but because they did not know how to do otherwise. The elder daughter did not care for society, apparently. The younger, who was but three years younger, was not yet quite old enough to be ambitious of it. With all her wonderful beauty, she had an innocence almost vegetable. When her beauty, which in its immaturity was crude and harsh, suddenly ripened, she bloomed and glowed with the unconsciousness of a flower. Yet she merely did not feel herself admired, but hardly knew herself discovered. If she dressed well, perhaps too well, it was because she had the instinct of dress. 
but till she met this young man who was so nice to her at Bay St. Paul, she had scarcely lived a detached individual life, so wholly had she spent on her mother and her sister for her opinions, almost her sensations. She took account of everything he did and said, pondering it, and trying to make out exactly what he meant, to the inflection of a syllable, the slightest movement or gesture. In this way she began for the first time to form ideas which she had not derived from her family, and they were none the less her own because they were often mistaken. Some of the things that he partly said, partly looked, she reported to her mother, and they talked them over, as they did everything related to these new acquaintances, and wrought them into the novel point of view which they were acquiring. When Mrs. Lapham returned home, she submitted all the accumulated facts of the case, and all her own conjectures to her husband, and confessed them anew. At first he was disposed to regard the whole affair as of small importance, and she had to insist a little beyond her own convictions, in order to counteract his indifference. "'Well, I can tell you,' she said, "'that if you think they were not the nicest people you ever saw, you're mightily mistaken. They had about the best manners, and they had been everywhere, and knew everything. I declare it made me feel as if we had always lived in the backwoods. I don't know but the mother and the daughters would have let you feel so a little if they showed out all they thought, but they never did, and the son, well, I can't express it, Silas, but that young man had about perfect ways. Seemed struck upon Irene, asked the Colonel. How can I tell? He seemed just about as much struck up on me. Anyway, he paid me as much attention as he did her. Perhaps it's more the way, now, to notice the mother than it used to be. Lapham ventured no conjecture, but asked, as he had asked already, who the people were. Mrs. Lapham repeated their name. Lapham nodded his head. Do you know them? What business is he in? I guess he ain't in anything, said Lapham. They were very nice, said Mrs. Lapham impartially. "'Well, they ought to be,' returned the Colonel. "'Never done anything else.' "'They didn't seem stuck up,' urged his wife. "'They'd no need to, with you. "'I could buy him and sell him twice over.' "'This answer satisfied Mrs. Lapham rather with the fact than with her husband. "'Well, I guess I wouldn't brag, Silas,' she said. "'In the winter, the ladies of this family, "'who returned to town very late, "'came to call on Mrs. Lapham.' They were again very polite, but the mother let drop, in apology for their calling almost at nightfall, that the coachman had not known the way exactly. Nearly all our friends are on the new land or on the hill. There was a barb in this that rankled after the ladies had gone, and on comparing notes with her daughter, Mrs. Lapham found that a barb had been left to rankle in her mind also. They said they had never been in this part of town before. Upon a strict search of her memory, Irene could not report that the fact had been stated with anything like insinuation, but it was that which gave it a more penetrating effect. "'Oh, well, of course,' said Lapham, to whom these facts were referred. "'Those sort of people haven't got much business up our way, and they don't come. It's a fair thing all round. We don't trouble the hill on the new lands much.' "'We know where they are,' suggested his wife thoughtfully." "'Yes,' assented the Colonel. "'I know where they are. 
I've got a little land over on the back bay. You have, eagerly demanded his wife. Want me to build on it, he asked in reply, with a quizzical smile. I guess we can get along here for a while. This was at night. In the morning, Mrs. Lapham said, I suppose we ought to do the best we can for the children in every way. I suppose we always had, replies her husband. Yes, we have, according to our light. Have you got some new light? I don't know as it's a light, but if the girls are going to keep on living in Boston and marry here, I presume we ought to try to get them into society some way, or ought to do something. Well, who's ever done more for their children than we have? demanded Lapham, with a pang at the thought that he could possibly have been outdone. Don't they have everything they want? Don't they dress just as you say? Don't you go everywhere with them? Is there ever anything going on that's worth while that they don't see it or hear it? I don't know what you mean. Why don't you get them into society? There's money enough. There's got to be something besides money, I guess, said Mrs. Lapham with a hopeless sigh. I presume we didn't go to work just the right way about their schooling. We ought to have got them into some school where they'd have got acquainted with city girls, girls who could help them along. Nearly everybody at Mrs. Smiley's was from somewhere else. Well, it's pretty late to think about that now, grumbled Lapham. And we've always gone our own way and not looked out for the future. We ought to have gone out more and had people come to the house. Nobody comes. Well, is that my fault? I guess nobody ever made people welcome her. We ought to have invited company more. Why don't you do it now? If it's for the girls, I don't care if you have the house full all the while. Mrs. Lapham was forced to a confession full of humiliation. I don't know who to ask. Well, you can't expect me to tell you. No. We're both country people, and we've kept our country ways, and we don't, either of us, know what to do. You've had to work so hard, and your luck was so long coming, and then it came with such a rush, that we haven't had any chance to learn what to do with it. It's just the same with Irene's looks. I didn't expect she was ever going to have any. She was such a plain child, and all at once she's blazed out this way. As long as it was Pen that didn't seem to care for society, I didn't give much mind to it. But I can see it's going to be different with Irene. I don't believe but what we're in the wrong neighbourhood. Well, said the Colonel, there ain't a pretty lot on the back bay than mine. It's on the water side of Beacon, and it's twenty-eight feet wide and a hundred and fifty deep. Let's build on it. Mrs. Lapham was silent for a while. No, she said finally. We've always got along well enough here, and I guess we'd better stay. At breakfast, she said casually, Girls, how would you like to have your father build on the new land? The girls said they did not know. It was more convenient to the horse cars where they were. Mrs. Lapham stole a look of relief at her husband, and nothing more was said of the matter. The mother of the family, who had called upon Mrs. Lapham, brought her husband's cards, and when Mrs. Lapham returned the same visit, she was in some trouble about the proper form of acknowledging the civility. The colonel had no cards but a business card, which advertised the principal depot and the several agencies of the mineral paint, and Mrs. Lapham doubted, till she wished to goodness that she had never seen nor heard of those people, whether to ignore her husband in the transaction altogether, or to write his name on her own card. 
She decided finally upon this measure, and she had the relief of not finding the family at home. As far as she could judge, Irene seemed to suffer a little disappointment from the fact. For several months there was no communication between the families. Then there came to Nankeen Square a lithographed circular from the people on the hill, signed in ink by the mother, and affording Mrs. Lapham an opportunity to subscribe for a charity of undeniable merit and acceptability. She submitted it to her husband, who promptly drew a cheque for five hundred dollars. She tore it in two. "'I would take a cheque for a hundred, Silas,' she said. "'Why?' he asked, looking up guiltily at her. "'Because a hundred is enough, and I don't want to show off before them.' "'Oh, I thought maybe you did.' "'Well, Pert,' he added, having satisfied human nature by the preliminary thrust, "'I guess you're about right. "'When do you want I should begin to build on Beacon Street?' He handed her the new cheque, where she stood over him, and then leaned back in his chair and looked up at her. "'I don't want you should begin at all. "'What do you mean, Silas?' she rested against the side of his desk. "'Well, I don't know as I mean anything, but shouldn't you like to build? "'Everybody builds at least once in a lifetime.' "'Where is your lot? They say it's unhealthy over there.' Up to a certain point in their prosperity, Mrs. Lapham had kept strict account of all her husband's affairs, but as they expanded, and ceased to be of the retail nature with which women successfully grapple, the intimate knowledge of them made her nervous. There was a period in which she felt that they were being ruined, but the crash had not come, and, since his great success, she had abandoned herself to a blind confidence in her husband's judgment, which she had hitherto felt needed her revision. He came and went, day by day, unquestioned. He bought and sold and got again. She knew that he would tell her if ever things went wrong, and he knew that she would ask him whenever she was anxious. "'It ain't unhealthy where I've bought,' said Lapham, rather enjoying her insinuation. "'I looked after that when I was trading, and I guess it's about as healthy on the back bay as it is here, anyway.' I got that lot for you, Pert. I thought you'd want to build on the back bay some day. For sure, said Mrs. Lapham, deeply pleased inwardly, but not going to show it, as she would have said. I guess you want to build there yourself. She insensibly got a little nearer to her husband. They like to talk to each other in that blunt way. It is the New England way of expressing perfect confidence and tenderness. Well, I guess I do, said Lapham, not insisting upon the unselfish view of the matter. I always did like the water-side of Beacon. There ain't a sightlier place in the world for a house. And some day there's bound to be a driveway all along behind them houses, and between them and the water. And then a lot there is going to be worth the gold that will cover it. Coin. I've had offers for that lot, Pert. Twice over what I give for it. Yes, I have. Don't you want to ride over there some afternoon with me and see it? I'm satisfied where we be, sigh, said Mrs. Lapham recurring to the parlance of her youth in her pathos at her husband's kindness. She sighed anxiously, for she felt the trouble a woman knows in viewing of any great change. They had often talked of altering over the house in which they lived, but they had never come to it, and they had often talked of building, but it had always been a house in the country that they had thought of. I wish you had sold that lot. I hain't, said the colonel briefly. I don't know as I feel much like changing our way of living. Guess we could live there pretty much as we live here, 
There's all kinds of people on Beacon Street. You mustn't think they're all big bugs. I know one party that lives in a house he built to sell, and his wife don't keep any girl. You can have just as much style there as you want, or just as little. I guess we live as well as most of them now, and set as good a table. And if you come to style, I don't know as anybody has got more of a right to put it on than what we have. Well, I don't want to build on Beacon Street, Si, said Mrs. Lapham gently. Just as you please, Persis. I ain't in any hurry to leave. Mrs. Lapham stood flapping the cheque, which she held in her right hand against the edge of her left. The Colonel still sat looking up at her face, and watching the effect of the poison of ambition which he had artfully instilled into her mind. She sighed again, a yielding sigh. "'What are you going to do this afternoon?' "'I'm going to take a turn on the Brighton Road,' said the Colonel. "'I don't believe but what I should like to go along,' said his wife. "'All right. You ain't ever rode behind that mare yet, Pert, and I want you should see me let her out once. They say the snow's all packed down already, and the going is A1. At four o'clock in the afternoon, with a cold red winter sunset before them, the Colonel and his wife were driving slowly down Beacon Street in the light, high-seated cutter, where, as he said, they were a pretty tight fit. He was holding the mare in till the time came to speed her, and the mare was springingly jolting over the snow, looking intelligently from side to side, and cocking this ear and that, while from her nostrils, her head tossing easily, she blew quick, irregular whiffs of steam. "'Gay, ain't she?' proudly suggested the Colonel. "'She is gay,' assented his wife. They met swiftly dashing sleighs, and let them pass on either hand, down the beautiful avenue, narrowing with an admirably even skyline in the perspective. They were not in a hurry. The mare jounced easily along, and they talked of the different houses on either side of the way. They had a crude taste in architecture, and they admired the worst. There were women's faces at many of the handsome windows, and once in a while a young man on the pavement caught his hat suddenly from his head, and bowed in response to some salutation from within. I don't think our girls would look very bad behind one of those big panes, said the colonel. No, said his wife dreamily. Where's the young man? Did he come with them? No, he was to spend the winter with a friend of his that has a ranch in Texas. I guess he's got to do something. Yes, gentlemaning as a profession has got to play out in a generation or two. Neither of them spoke of the lot, though Lapham knew perfectly well what his wife had come with him for, and she was aware that he knew it. The time came when he brought the mare down to a walk, and then slowed up almost to a stop, while they both turned their heads to the right and looked at the vacant lot, through which showed the frozen stretch of the back bay, a section of the long bridge, and of the roofs and smokestacks of Charlestown. "'Yes, it's sightly,' said Mrs. Lapham, lifting her hand from the reins, on which she had unconsciously laid it. Lapham said nothing, but he let the mare out a little. The sleighs and cutters were thickening around them. On the mill dam it became difficult to restrict the mare to the long, slow trot into which he had let her break. The beautiful landscape widened to right and left of them, with the sunset redder and redder over the low, irregular hills before them. They crossed the mill dam into Longwood, and here, from the crest of the first upland, 
stretched two endless lines, in which thousands of cutters went and came. Some of the drivers were already speeding their horses, and these shot to and fro on the inner lines, between the slowly moving vehicles on either side of the road. Here and there a barely-mounted policeman, bulging over the pommel of his McClellan saddle, jolted by, silently gesturing and directing the course, and keeping it all under the eye of the law. It was what Bartley Hubbard called a carnival of fashion and gaiety on the Brighton Road, in his account of it. But most of those people in their elegant sleighs and cutters had so little the air of the great world, that one knowing it all must have wondered where they and their money came from, and the gaiety of the men at least was expressed, like that of Colonel Lapham, in a grim almost fierce alertness. The women wore an air of courageous apprehension. At a certain point the colonel said, "'I'm going to let her out, Pert,' and he lifted and then dropped the reins lightly on the mare's back. She understood the signal, and, as an admirer said, she laid down to her work. Nothing in the immutable iron of Lapham's face betrayed his sense of triumph, as the mare left everything behind her on the road. Mrs. Lapham, if she felt fear, was too busy holding her flying wraps about her, and shielding her face from the scud of ice flung from the mare's heels, to betray it. Except for the rush of her feet, the mare was as silent as the people behind her, the muscles of her back and thighs worked more and more swiftly, like some mechanism responding to an alien force, and she shot to the end of the course, grazing a hundred encountered and rival sledges in her passage, but unmolested by the policeman, who probably saw that the mare and the colonel knew what they were about, and, at any rate, were not the sort of men to interfere with trotting like that. At the end of the heat, Lapham drew her in, and turned off on a side street into Brookline. "'Tell you what, Pert,' he said, as if they had been quietly jogging along, with time for uninterrupted thought since he last spoke. I've about made up my mind to build on that lot. All right, Silas, said Mrs. Lapham. I suppose you know what you're about. Don't build on it for me, that's all. When she stood in the hall at home, taking off her things, she said to the girls, who were helping her, Some day your father will get killed with that mare. Did he speed her? asked Penelope, the elder. She was named after her grandmother, who had, in her turn, inherited from another ancestress the name of the Homeric matron, whose peculiar merits won her a place even among the Puritan faiths, hopes, temperances, and prudences. Penelope was the girl whose odd serious face had struck Bartley Hubbard in the photograph of the family group Lapham showed him on the day of the interview. Her large eyes, like her hair, were brown. They had the peculiar look of near-sighted eyes, which is called mooning. Her complexion was of a dark pallor. Her mother did not reply to a question which might be considered already answered. He says he's going to build on that lot of his, she next remarked, unwinding the long veil which she had tied round her neck to hold her bonnet on. She put her hat and cloak on the hall table to be carried upstairs later, and they all went in to tea. Creamed oysters, birds, hot biscuit, two kinds of cake, and dishes of stewed and canned fruit and honey. The women dined alone at one, and the colonel at the same hour downtown. But he liked a good hot meal when he came home in the evening. The house fled with gas, and the colonel, before he sat down, went about shutting the registers, through which a welding heat came voluming up from the furnace. 
"'I'll be the death of that darky yet,' he said, "'if you don't stop making on such a fire. "'The only way to get any comfort out of your furnace "'is to take care of it yourself.' "'Well,' answered his wife from behind the teapot, "'as he sat down at the table with this threat, "'there's nothing to prevent you, Si, "'and you can shovel the snow too if you want to, "'till you get over to Beacon Street, anyway.' "'I guess I can keep my own sidewalk on Beacon Street clean if I take the notion.' "'I should like to see you at it,' retorted his wife. "'Well, you keep a sharp lookout, and maybe you will.' Their taunts were really expressions of affectionate pride in each other. They liked to have it, give and take, that way, as they would have said right along. "'A man can be a man on Beacon Street as well as anywhere, I guess.' "'Well, I'll do the wash, as I used to in Numberville,' said Mrs. Lapham. "'I presume you'll let me have set-tubs, Si. "'You know I ain't so young any more.' "'She passed Irene a cup of oolong tea. "'None of them had a sufficiently cultivated palate for Souchong, "'and the girl handed it to her father. "'Papa,' she asked, "'you don't really mean that you're going to build over there?' "'Don't I? You wait and see,' said the Colonel, stirring his tea. "'I don't believe you do,' pursued the girl. "'Is that so?' "'I presume you'd hate to have me. Your mother does.' He said do's, of course. Penelope took the word. "'I go in for it. I don't see any use in not enjoying money, if you've got it to enjoy. That's what it's for, I suppose, that you mightn't always think so.' She had a slow, quaint way of talking that seemed a pleasant personal modification of some ancestral Yankee drawl, and her voice was low and cosy, and so far from being nasal that it was a little hoarse.' "'I guess the eyes has it, Pen,' said her father. "'How would it do to let Irene and your mother stick in the old place here, "'and let us go in the new house?' "'At times the Colonel's grammar failed him.' "'The matter dropped, and the Laphams lived on as before, "'with joking recurrences to the house on the waterside of Beacon. "'The Colonel seemed less in earnest than any of them about it, "'but that was his way,' his girl said. "'He never could tell when he really meant a thing.' End of chapter 2